Deep dive into the world of science with Nature Plus. From the vastness of the distant star systems to the intricacies of infectious diseases due to climate change, we've got you covered. Enjoy access to over 55 cutting-edge journals, breaking scientific news, and over a 1,000 new articles every month. Whether you're a seasoned researcher or just curious, Nature Plus simplifies complex studies. Plus, it's all available right at your fingertips on nature.com. Nature Plus, the key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com plus. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. In an experiment. Why is light so far? Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, studying sleep in octopus brains. And a hormone involved in weight loss. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Sleep is an essential part of our lives. But it's not just the opposite of being awake. Sleep has different stages when different parts of the brain are active. Generally speaking, last night, your sleep cycled between two phases. Slow-wave sleep, where the electrical waves in your brain synchronised in their frequency and things were pretty calm. And rapid eye movement, or REM sleep, when parts of the brain are incredibly active and the pattern of activity looks closer to when you're awake. It's during REM sleep that dreams can be a lot more vivid. It's not understood exactly what each of these phases are for. For example, slow-wave sleep is thought to play a role in memory processing. But both phases must be important, because they're not just found in humans. In fact, studies have shown that two-stage sleep is found in a multitude of vertebrates. Mammals, birds, reptiles and so on, although there are differences between them. And recently, research has shown that this seems to be happening in some invertebrates as well. This week in Nature, a team have published some new work that delves deeper into one kind of invertebrate, the octopus, to learn more about what's going on in the sleep of these intelligent creatures. To find out more, I spoke with one of the authors of the paper, Sam Reiter, from the Okinawa Institute for Science and Technology in Japan, and he told me more about what is understood about invertebrate sleep. Yeah, so previous work had showed that in invertebrates, it looks like there's not this sort of two stages of sleep, rather that the brain of the Drosophila, for example, when it sleeps, really just kind of turns off. But some work a few years ago suggested that in cephalopods, so this is octopus, cuttlefish, and squid, there could be something like a more active stage of sleep. So cephalopods have their brains wired directly to their skin, to large sets of specialized skin cells that can expand and contract under neural control. 
So when you see the animal when they're awake, they're, they're constantly changing their pattern for camouflage and for social displays and for hunting. What was reported was that while they're asleep, it looks like they are rapidly transitioning through these skin patterns. It doesn't look like the brain was turned off at all. And so this was very intriguing. And so this motivated us to delve deeper into what's going on. Is this really sleep? If it is, what's the meaning of these skin patterns? What's going on in the brain while these skin patterns are happening? These sort of questions. And to get a sense of what was going on then, you were studying octopuses. Which ones in particular were you looking at? What can you tell me about them? So Okinawa has, I think, the greatest number of local octopus species on Earth. And we just happened to find this local species called octopus laqueus first and brought them into the lab. And this species was a really fantastic choice for this question because they're nocturnal and they would sleep continuously during our day. So while we were at work and it was really convenient to study their sleep. (laughs) And so it's known then that octopuses have these two sleep stages. What was not known about them? What were you interested to find out? Well, it hadn't been shown that active sleep met all the evolutionary conserved criteria for sleep. So there's three criteria that almost all animals that sleep show. And this state can be rapidly reversed. So this separates sleep from death. It comes with a heightened arousal threshold. So it's harder to wake this animal up from this state. And the third is that it's under homeostatic control. So if you prevent the animal from entering this state for some time and then let them freely behave, they'll enter this state more often than they would before the deprivation. So we were able to show all three of these for the first time in octopus. So proving that this active state where the animal rapidly moves its eyes, rapidly transitions through skin patterns and does body twitches. This is actually sleep. And that's the behavioral aspect of this work then. But you've also probed the brains of these animals to work out what's going on there. What did you find when you were reading the brain patterns of these octopuses that were asleep? So in active sleep, the brain looks like it's awake, paradoxically. So the neural activity in certain brain regions during wake and active sleep match. In quiet sleep, the brain really kind of goes quiet, except for particular brain regions that have this 12 hertz short oscillatory bursts that resembles what we see in vertebrate slow-wave sleep. And these are features linked with learning and memory in vertebrates. And intriguingly, they're only found in the octopus in regions that we know have been linked to learning and memory. So we don't know quite what the significance of this is, but it's an intriguing finding, I think. So it seems like you've shown that these octopuses have these two sleep stages, active sleep and quiet sleep. And during the active sleep, their brains are acting like they're awake. And you're seeing some of this play out on the skins of the animals, right? With the pattern changes, as you mentioned earlier on. What did this tell you? So the active sleep skin patterns, we could record these. And we can also record the patterns when the animal's awake. And we find that these patterns matched almost exactly. So it seems that the octopus, when it's asleep, is reactivating its waking skin patterns. This is accompanied by wake-like neural activity. So the significance of this is unclear. We had a number of different hypotheses. So I guess from maybe the least to the most interesting. But one is that it could be just all the individual cells in its body are doing different sort of offline practice to maintain the neural connections, just a housekeeping sort of function. A little more interesting of an idea would be that this is an offline practice of the functions of the skin patterning system. So in vertebrates, when you learn some motor skill, 
your brain is reactivating those motor circuits offline to help you better learn the skill. Or it could be that this is something like the reactivation of the waking experience in the octopus for something like memory consolidation or even something like dream. So I think this is the full gamut of what's possible here. And I think future work hopefully will narrow it down. And what do you think octopuses might be dreaming about if that's what it is? Well, you know, we can see the patterns that they do when they're awake and we can associate those with certain situations. So there's definitely a pattern that they do when it seems like they're happy when they get some food. Those patterns show up when they're sleeping. So it's tempting to say this is the contents of the sleep, but it could be something else. But the fact that we can map these sleeping patterns onto waking patterns means that the octopus gives us really a unique window into the contents of the offline brain. It's a unique access that would be difficult to come by by studying other animals. So it might be that that octopus will help us understand what's going on in this enigmatic area of sleep research. And more broadly, you've looked at this in a group of animals that diverged from vertebrates hundreds of millions of years ago. They are vastly alien species compared to you or I, for example. And yet it seems like there are some parallels that you could draw between the two, right? Like humans have the REM sleep and the slow wave sleep and octopuses have the active sleep where there's a lot going on in the brain and the quiet sleep where things are a bit more placid. Is it possible to draw a parallel between the two, do you think? So the range of similarities that we observe, I think suggests that this is an example of convergent evolution where, as you say, our common ancestor lived 550 million years ago and almost certainly didn't do this. So this is two paths that evolution has taken and has emerged at sort of a common form of sleep. So this to me suggests that whatever sleep and these two stages of sleep is for, it's something quite fundamental that evolution would hit upon it twice independently. And it could mean that these two stages of sleep and large brains and complex behavior, which has only evolved twice in the vertebrates and in the cephalopods, maybe these things all go hand in hand. But, you know, future work is needed to determine this. And in terms of your work with the octopuses, then, where does it go next? I think the interesting directions are how mechanistically do these two stages of sleep alternate and be generated? And how does this map onto what we know mechanistically about the mammalian two-stage sleep, for example? And then I think maybe even more interesting is, can we do the sort of functional tests that have been done in mammals to try to establish what these two stages of sleep are for, what benefit they give the animal? If these tests also show some sort of parallel answer, then it really points us towards a kind of an explanation for this in terms of convergent evolution of common function. I mean, what does it make you think about the universality of sleep? Because there's so much we don't know about it as a process. Well, I think sleep is quite universal. It seems like every animal from jellyfish to hydra to humans sleeps. Two stages of sleep was thought to be a human and then a vertebrate specific phenomenon. But now there's this work in cephalopods, there's some suggestive work in spiders. It could be that two stages of sleep is also quite broad. Again, it cries out for some explanation for why. (laughs) Sam Reiter there. To read his paper, head over to the show notes for a link. We've also got a video about the work on our YouTube channel. So if you want to see the patterns flashing across a sleeping octopus's skin, look out for a link in the show notes once again. Coming up, a hormone that could help make diets more effective – Right now, though, it's the Research Highlights with Dan Fox. 
Last year's massive eruption of an underwater volcano in Tonga produced the most extreme lightning ever recorded. The volcano Hunga Tonga Hunga Hapai set or tied many records when it erupted in January 2022. Its ash plume soared 58 kilometers into the air and it created the most powerful atmospheric waves of modern times. Now, researchers have combined data from weather satellites and ground-based radio antennas used to detect lightning to peer into the ash cloud and study the powerful thunderstorms that were triggered by the eruption. They found that at the peak, the storms generated a record 2,615 lightning flashes every minute. Lightning also formed in huge concentric rings, up to 280 kilometers across, which expanded and contracted as turbulence rippled through the atmosphere. Read that research in full, over in Geophysical Research Letters. A new nylon-based fabric can be fashioned into a garment that keeps the wearer either warm or cool at the flick of a switch. The material is made of thin layers of nylon, gold, and an electrically conducting polymer. To make the material flexible, the authors used principles from the Japanese paper art Kirigami, which entails cutting a 2D surface and then folding it into 3D patterns. The polymer can either emit heat or provide insulation depending on the voltage applied to it. Tests showed that a person wearing a patch made of the material would feel the same skin temperature at ambient temperatures from 22 degrees Celsius down to 17.1 degrees, something that would take a lot of energy to achieve with a conventional electric heater, for example. The authors say that materials such as theirs could help to limit the occurrence of medical events such as stroke that are linked to changes in body temperature. You can find that paper in PNAS Nexus. Next up on the show, you may well be familiar with dieting. In its simplest form, it refers to calorie restriction in order to lose weight. But you may also be familiar with the fact that weight loss can be quick at first, but then can slow down and weight can even creep back on even when calories remain reduced. The problem is that metabolism isn't a constant and the body adapts. When food becomes scarcer, the body aims to start using energy more efficiently in response. For example, some adipose tissues, fats, can reduce their output of heat, conserving precious energy stores. However, the exact mechanisms underpinning this effect, especially in humans, are unclear. Now though, in nature, there's a new study describing how researchers have found that a hormone known as GDF-15 may be able to prevent this adaptation and allow continued weight loss. Reporter Nick Petridge Howe called up Greg Steinberg, one of the study's authors, and started by asking him what the motivation was for this study. We started from the observation that people can lose weight quite easily initially, but over time that ability to lose weight plateaus and then most people regain the weight within a year. Right? Dieting and exercise we know works, but for most people, it's not maintained. And it's not because people are 
weak-willed and don't know what they're doing. <laughs> they have the best intentions, but their metabolism slows down and is working against them. And so this was the motivation for this. And so, yeah, you were looking at this plateauing then, and you look to something called GDF-15. How did you get to GDF-15, and what is it? Well, many years ago, we pulled GDF-15 out of a, a screen where we were looking for how metformin, the leading type 2 diabetes medication, might be signaling to the rest of the body. And we discovered that GDF-15 was being secreted from the liver and then talking to the brain to tell the brain to reduce feeding. Subsequently, after we did those studies, very shortly after that, we found out that many companies were working on GDF-15 as an anti-obesity agent. And this is really how we got into studying this, whether there might be other beneficial effects of GDF-15 beyond appetite control. Okay, so at the start, it was just seen as maybe an appetite suppressive. It would stop people or mice, I guess, in these cases, eating. That's exactly right. And, you know, people have done studies in mice, non-human primates, and even clinical studies with GDF-15 showing that it can suppress food intake. And so to further look into what GDF-15 can do, what did you do in this study? So what we did is we repeated a study that was done four years ago, started injecting mice, with the same doses of GDF-15, but had a calorically matched group of animals. And we did this initial experiment at a temperature range called thermoneutrality, which is a range of temperature that slows down the metabolism of the mouse, similar to humans. And what we found is that when we did that, you know, we replicated the previous findings exactly. The first 14 days of treatment, the calorically restricted mice and the mice injected GDF-15 lost the exact same amount of weight which was exactly what the previous studies had published on showing that GDF-15 was only regulating appetite. But what we found was after 14 days, the calorically restricted mice plateaued. They continued to eat a small amount of food, like 10 or 13% less food, but their body weights plateaued. They no longer lost any more body weight, while as the GDF-15 mice continued to lose body weight suggesting that there was another mechanism besides food intake. So what role then was GDF-15 playing to sort of prolong this weight loss? That was the exciting bit that we then pursued and found that, in fact, what was happening is when we were delivering GDF-15 to mice, that their metabolism wasn't slowing down to the same extent as the calorically restricted mice. And you did a whole host of studies to find the mechanism for how GDF-15 was preventing this slowdown in metabolism normally associated with calorie restriction. And your initial focus, as I understand it, was on adipose tissues, on fats. We really expected this to be the mechanism, but we could see no signs that GDF-15 was stimulating energy expenditure in adipose tissue, which then led us to investigate the muscle. And... With that, we found that the GDF-15 was, in fact, stimulating energy burning within the muscle. And it was doing so by making the amount of calcium cycling in the muscle be enhanced. So it was reducing the efficiency in which the muscle sequesters calcium when it contracts. And this, in effect, made the metabolism higher, I guess, to put it crudely. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, there had been studies published in humans, remarkably, where when people undergo weight loss therapy or dieting and they go on an exercise bike, 
and exercise at a set workload, their muscles actually become more efficient after the weight loss. And we think this is all to do with the improved calcium cycling, the efficiency of the calcium cycling. So when you move, you're burning less calories because the system has become more efficient in sequestering that calcium with muscle contractions. And speaking of humans, do you think there is an opportunity here to use this GDF-15 to help people who struggle with weight loss? Our studies really suggest that the biggest effect with GDF-15 is actually going to be in the context of which dieting is also being used. GDF-15 on its own isn't enough to increase energy expenditure above baseline levels. But what it will do is it will prevent the slowdown in metabolism that occurs with dieting or caloric restriction. And this is quite important in the context of we now have a series of drugs that suppress feeding, and these drugs have been very successful and are causing weight loss. So in the context of using GDF-15, it may be more effective when used with either a dieting regime or with a, a caloric suppressing agent because it will keep that energy burning high. That was Greg Steinberg from McMaster University in Canada. To find out more about this study, check out the show notes for some links. Finally on the show, it's time for the briefing chat, where we discuss a couple of stories that have been highlighted in the Nature Briefing. And Shamini, why don't you go first this week? And it's a story that, well, you know quite a lot about. It is. I'm cheating again. It's another story that I'm going to tell you about because I have made a video about it. It's out on our YouTube channel right now. But it is a very cool story and it is a paper that was out last week in Nature Communications Engineering, actually out on International Women in Engineering Day. And it is all about um, what I like to call a little robotic raspberry. Robotic raspberry. Okay, well, listen, (laughs) you've got to unpick this a little bit. Charmaine, tell me about the robotic raspberry. (laughs) So um, it it looks like a little fake raspberry. It's very cute. It's slightly red and it's got like a bumpy outer surface. And this is what this paper is about, the development of, they call it a physical twin. And the idea is basically this story is all about trying to create and develop and train fruit picking machines. So in this case, a raspberry picking robot. How do you train a robot to be good at picking raspberries? And apparently that's not that easy. Yeah, because raspberries are quite squishy fruit. They are. If you get a robot to go up there and just kind of take its pincers and squeeze, you're going to have a raspberry smoothie rather than a picked raspberry. There's quite a lot of squishiness involved yes in raspberry picking and you know there's loads of of fruits and vegetables and crops that are all harvested by machine or at least like a lot of the food we consume comes from this sort of machine harvesting but yeah certain soft fruits it's a bit trickier raspberries being one of those and the way to develop machines that are better at picking raspberries is you have to train them up and test them and get them better at it and that involves going into a raspberry field in raspberry season and testing out your robot Right. But transporting your robot out into the field, having this limited amount of time, that's a bit tricky. So what these researchers have done is they've said, well, what if we could just train and sort of work on our robot in the lab before having to go and actually test it in the field? And let's just set up in the lab a fake raspberry bush (laughs) that we can work with. Obviously, of course. (laughs) Right. Why wouldn't you? And so the fake robotic raspberry then is helping the robot learn how to not squeeze too hard, is that right? Yeah, um, so it's not, you know, just a sort of solid raspberry shape. It does what a raspberry does, you know, when you pluck it from the stem 
and the soft fruity bit is round the outside and there's a sort of bit of the stem that goes down into the middle and the stalk sort of bends slightly and then you kind of pull and then you get the raspberry in your hand. I don't know, have you picked many raspberries in your time? I can't say I have, but you're describing it beautifully. (laughs) But okay, all right. So there's a trick to it is what you're saying. There is a trick to it. And the key thing was what they did was they got humans to pick the fake raspberry off its little plastic stem and this robotic raspberry has a sensor in it so it can detect pressure and sense the pressure and then what they did was they said okay well let's look at exactly what humans and expert raspberry pickers are doing when they pick a raspberry and it turns out that what they're doing is putting that pressure on pulling and then as soon as it kind of comes off lightening up the grip so that that raspberry doesn't get crushed and once they have the readings from the raspberry picking experts they can then feed that back into what the robot's doing and give it that feedback and say oh you're going a bit hard there or a bit gentle there and actually again use this pressure sensor to tell the robot how it's doing and thus sort of improve it over time right and so the robot i guess then practices on the fake sensor laden raspberry then and then it's brought out into the field and actually had a go on the real thing yeah so they had some lovely footage of them actually testing with this robot sort of trundling down the rows between all the raspberry plants growing and having a go at plucking the raspberries off the stem which from the video it seems to have done pretty well they said that they were pleasantly surprised by how well it did just given that that was the first time actually that it was meeting real raspberries and where to next then i mean is this robot ready for prime time i don't think this robot is at the stage of mass production and commercialization yet i think that's the sort of idea of a lot of the research to be able to sort of mechanize these processes this has various benefits including preventing food waste that can occur when there are labor shortages but in order for these particular machines to be ready for that there's more angles that this group haven't looked into so for example robot vision so how are these machines actually spot a raspberry you know how does it find it to grasp it and kind of detect the ripeness maybe from the color things like that but you know this work kind of wasn't really in a way about the raspberry picking robot it was about making this fake raspberry this physical twin as they call it so that they or other teams can do all this work in the lab work on these robots and get them to a much more advanced state before going out into the field and plucking fruit well a fascinating piece of research no doubt and listeners head over to the show notes where you can find a link to watch a video all about the fake fruit the robot raspberry and the picking robot as well (laughs) well listen let's move on in today's briefing chat and i've got a story that i read about in nature and i'll start with a question and that is what does a bad house party and the exoplanet trappist 1c <laughs> have in common this is not a serious question this is some, going to be some kind of terrible pun well i mean how ever did you guess the answer is neither of them have much of an atmosphere Aww. okay and bringing it back to seriousness of course this is some research that was published in nature and it's about a team who've used the james webb space telescope the jwst to have a look at this exoplanet as i say the results reveal there's really not much of an atmosphere there if there is one at all okay so trappist 1c the trappist system that sounds familiar to me can you just give me a bit of background on where and what this exoplanet is and why were researchers interested in looking for an atmosphere there in the first place well that's a great question the trappist 1 system then is kind of the poster system for kind of studying exoplanets Mm. right And so it's some 40 light years away, and it has seven of these planets orbiting the star, right? And these have rocky surfaces, roughly the same size as Earth. And so researchers have been looking at this system to see how, you know, planets form and evolve, and then maybe how they become 
habitable. But of course, you know, part of that is looking to see if they've got a thick atmosphere. And a few months ago, researchers saw that the closest planet to this star, which is Trappist 1b, okay, they've had a look at that and there is no substantial atmosphere there, right? And JWST lets researchers look for atmospheres in greater detail than other observatories like Hubble, okay? And I think the problem with 1b is that the star that it orbits around, it's a cool star and it blasts out loads of ultraviolet radiation. And this just batters the closest planet and stripped away the atmosphere. So researchers went to the next closest, which is 1C, to see if, you know, maybe it was far enough away to kind of get away with it, to have some sort of atmosphere. But it seems like that's not the case. And how do they actually know that there's no atmosphere there now? Well, by having a good look at this exoplanet, then this Trappist 1C, they were able to calculate the surface temperature of this planet. Okay. okay. Hmm. And for the side that faces the sun, it showed that the surface temperature was about 107 degrees Celsius. And I find it incredible that they could figure that out from so far away. But this makes it too hot to maintain a thick carbon dioxide rich atmosphere. Oh. And the reason this is interesting is because a lot of researchers thought that this exoplanet 1C might be like Venus, okay, because it's about the same sort of size. It receives about the same amount of solar radiation. But whereas Venus has this very thick carbon dioxide atmosphere, that is not the case for the exoplanet. And they went on and did some more modelling as well. And their results suggest that this exoplanet then only had a low amount of water when it was formed, okay. So I think less than 10 Earth oceans worth of water and so combining this with the lack of the co2 atmosphere suggests that trappist-1c never had many ingredients for habitability (sighs) no aliens no future human space colony on trappist-1c well i mean we don't know for example that there's no atmosphere at all there could be a thin atmosphere right but not the kind of thick one that was being posited but what gets interesting then is the researchers in the article say that it, it might make a difference to the amount of planets which are actually habitable because planets of this type are quite common around many stars. But showing that, you know, in this case, there's no atmosphere could reduce the number, you know, the probability of finding a habitable exoplanet somewhere else. But it's not necessarily the end of the story because, as I say, Trappist-1 system has seven planets. Oh, we've looked at B and C. D, E, F. Oh, there's a whole load left to go yeah. then. Okay. Is that the next stop for the JWST's gaze? Well, definitely researchers are keen to have a look. And a paper was posted to Archive a little while ago, so it's not a peer-reviewed paper, doing a bit of maths and saying that maybe the fourth and fifth furthest planets in the Trappist-1 system, so that's E and F for those of you at home keeping score, <laughs> could still have thick atmospheres because they sit far enough away to avoid you know, having it blasted away like B and C. So there's so much we don't know about how you know exoplanets form and how their atmospheres form, but it seems like Trappist-1 is helping researchers out. Well, we'll have a space story. Thank you for that, Ben. And listeners, if you want to find links to these two stories we've been talking about, we'll stick those in the show notes, as well as a sign-up link for The Nature Briefing, which is an email newsletter with lots of exciting stories like these. And that is it for this week's show. But of course, just time to say you can reach out to us on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast or send an email to podcast at nature.com. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Sharmini Vandell. Thanks for listening. The Nature Podcast is supported by Nature Plus, a flexible monthly subscription that grants immediate online access to the science journal Nature and over 50 other journals from the Nature Portfolio.
More information at go.nature.com slash plus.